Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi there, it's Annika and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Speak Up. I don't know about you, but I always have the best of intentions to read new research papers and keep totally up to date with the research outcomes in the clinical areas I work in. My best of intentions don't always become a reality, though, in my crazy, busy clinical world, so I'm really pleased to be exploring some recent papers in the area of childhood apraxia of speech today. Who better to do this with than Dr. Kieran Flanagan, Senior Lecturer and Course Director of Speech Pathology at Australian Catholic University in Queensland. Hi and welcome, Kieran. Hello, Annika. Uh, So I know that you have a number of research interests, including paediatric speech sound disorder. So I'm really excited to be chatting through three papers in the area of CAS with you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So the first paper is a review article titled Differential Diagnosis of Childhood Apraxia of Speech Compared to Other Speech Sound Disorders, a Systematic Review, authored by Elizabeth Murray and colleagues. And to start, I thought it would be really helpful if you could give us all a brief outline as to what this paper was about. Sure, I'd be really happy to. So something about me is that my journey with childhood apraxia of speech is very much centred around being a, a clinician. So a lot of the research work that I've done in, in my career has been around about language, but a lot of my clinical work has been with, with speech sound disorders. So I really relied on the work of, of other people, uh, of the great researchers that we have here in Australia and around the world to let me know what to do with child apraxia of speech. And one of the first things we probably have to think about is, is diagnosis. So the first article that we've picked out and we're going to talk about today, as you're saying before, it's by Elizabeth Murray and colleagues. So as um, Australian speech pathologists, or if you're listening to this overseas, you're more than welcome and welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, we can be very proud in Australia in that we've got some great research teams, um, particularly down at the University of Sydney. Um, so Elizabeth Murray and some of her colleagues there. So Kiri Ballard, mm-hmm. uh, of course, is also on this paper. Um, and Trish McCabe's also a big part of that team. And they've got a number of um, other researchers they've been working with. They've just done a massive job in terms of uh, letting us know what childhood apraxia of speech is, actually really looking at the, the rigour of the evidence and contributing to that evidence base so we've got a good idea about what to do as clinicians. So this first paper, as I was saying before, is looking at diagnosis. And what it tells us, so this one came out very recently. So this one came out in January last year. So it's you know pretty up to date. I'd be yeah, definitely. pretty happy to go by what's in that one. It says that Actually, although we're in a better place than we were before 2007, uh, there's still some really big challenges in diagnosing childhood apraxia of speech. It's really, really hard. Um, So although there's a number of features that we can look at to identify that 
we would normally see with children with childhood apraxia of speech. None of those is unique to childhood apraxia of speech. As well, we don't know or we don't have a lot of direction in terms of what you're meant to do and exactly what a child with childhood apraxia of speech would look like uh, when you're doing an assessment. Um, so in this paper, what they do is they say, well, that's actually a big problem. And they go through a range of different assessments that are available and they rate them. So they look at things like uh, how sensitive the assessment is to different characteristics of child apraxia of speech. So how likely is it to pick up a characteristic? They also look at specificity. So that's the idea about being able to say whether or not someone doesn't have a particular uh, feature as well. And it tries to look at how well different assessments for childhood apraxia of speech will differentiate from other speech sound disorders, which is what is really, really hard in the clinical space. Yeah. So I'm just wondering then, so based out of this paper, there were a number of features of CAS that overlap with other speech sound disorders. And I'm just wondering, can you tell us what they are? Sure. So if we're looking at, say, the diagnostic features of childhood apraxia of speech, it's hard to go, okay, there's one, there's no specific diagnostic diagnostic feature. There's a range of, range of, say, characteristics or three features that you'd expect to see in a child with childhood apraxia of speech. So that's a prosodic disturbance, mm-hmm. that's co-articulation errors, so the ability to be able to sequence sounds, and consistency of speech, so you'd see inconsistent speech. But the thing is, you're going to see those features in other speech sound mm-hmm. disorders. So say prosodic disturbance, you would see, think of any child you've ever seen who has dysarthria, you'll mm-hmm. know that then. Um, inconsistent speech, well, that's the key feature of inconsistent disorder. Um, <laughs> exactly. Right. So, um, and that takes you know, a reasonably different kind of treatment. And then, of course, the co-articulation errors. So children can have problems with phonotactic in, in words, you, you see this occasionally in, in um, clinical practice or there's particular sound combinations that they can't do. Um, so that could be present in other speech sound disorders or even there are some phonological processes that can look like co-articulation issues as well. So you might see deletions, etc. cetera. Um, so that's really tricky. Then just to complicate matters even further, I'm just sort of muddying the waters here so you, we can appreciate some of the work I think that's being done um, by the, these amazing authors, uh, is that something that's really tricky is that, as we were saying before, there's no, say, operational definitions or standard procedures for child, um, diagnosing child with apraxia of speech. So how inconsistent someone needs to be or how much of a product dis- prosodic disturbance or what prosodic disturbance. So, for instance, I mentioned before, a child might be deleting consonants Mm-hmm. Um, so they might not be having any, it might not have any initial, con- initial consonants. Is this a co-articulation error or is this say more of a, a prosodic thing that's going on because maybe the first syllable is actually going from the word. Mm-hmm. So what do these particular features look like? And when I talk to other clinicians as well, that's something I find um, that we would agree uh, that we find really challenging. Oh, so tricky. So, so tricky. Mm-hmm. So what assessment tools actually are there? that will help us with that? Sure. So I think a big finding that came out of the systematic review is that there isn't one particular tool. Um, And that actually is a finding that's been replicated in the past. So um, Edie Strand um, did a paper a number of years ago reviewing all the assessments for childhood apraxia of speech. 
um, that were out and about. I, it didn't go into as much detail, say, the systematic review mm-hmm. did, um, but it was saying, well, we're not in a great spot. There's no silver bullet for assessing child apraxia of speech, but as speech pathologists, we're the, the people to do it. Yeah. And that same kind of finding comes out of um, Murray's paper, Elizabeth Murray's paper. So what we can say, I think fairly um, confidently, is that using a range of assessments is a good way to go. Speech pathologist with experience is a, is a good person to be doing that. And if you don't have a lot of experience with child or that practice of speech, then seek some assistance from, from mm-hmm. someone who does. Um, however, we've made some progress lately in, in child or that practice of speech. So in, in terms of assessment, um, in that, as I mentioned before, in 2007, things started to change. We started to get a bit of an agreed definition about what child apraxia of speech is, and that is due to the release of the ASHA position statement and technical mm-hmm. report into child apraxia of speech. Um, now, that gave us the features <laughs> that we, we're agreeing and we're using. Um, yeah. And so that was that was a big breakthrough. Before that, we couldn't get that consensus, and Forrest and colleagues put out a paper, I think, that said there were some 50 different characteristics that speech pathologists were sort of choosing from before that um, for a diagnosis of child apraxia of speech. So it was, things are a little nebulous. They're a little bit more um, uh, defined now. Um, But as we're saying before, we haven't got good operational guidelines um, or or, um, put standard procedures for doing that kind of assessment not like you would say to measure blood pressure it's like mm. you use a spikebometer you get these numbers you've you've got high blood pressure you know that kind of idea so we haven't got that um but since 2007 with that good definition coming out there's been some time now for some assessments to come out that are based on those uh features of childhood apraxia of speech that asher identified so um one assessment, yeah so the so the assessment that i that i think if you're just looking for like one assessment to do and i, I would say don't <laughs> use multiple um but the dems is is a good assessment to pick out so that's the dynamic evaluation of motor speech skills mm-hmm. and so that one was put out by Edie. Edith Strand and colleagues. Um, so Edith Strand and Rebecca McCauley popped that one out. Um, that was only last year or the year before that right, one came okay. out. So one of the great things about the DEMS is that we're looking at all three of those features of inconsistent speech. We're looking at pros- prosody and we're looking at co-articulation. Something that often comes up when people are thinking about childhood apraxia of speech as well is how difficult it is to differentiate from dysarthria. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it is quite challenging, particularly if you have some dysarthrias that are involving, say, like, you know, soft palate function, et cetera, or maybe even some ataxic features that can be really challenging. Um, something that the paper pulls out as well is that maximum performance can be a way to differentiate between child apraxia of speech and dysarthria. So that's worth mentioning in the sense that... Um, in terms of, say, the children are more likely to fatigue, the length of the utterance isn't going to be long, etc. So uh, in terms of um, yeah, maximum performance, that's a, a feature mm. to look at to try and look at between child apraxia of speech and dysarthria. And is that sensitive in the tool that you've just mentioned? Is that something that's part of that assessment? Uh, no. So no, that Okay, so that's something you've got to keep in your head as another clinical little exactly. tool yourself. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wouldn't 
right off something like the deep. Um, I quite yeah. like the deep. That's a bit of a go-to tool for me um, mm-hmm. when I'm. Which is a- probably better known, I would say, in Australia. Absolutely, it's yeah. and it's, it's and for very good reason. It's a great little assessment for a range of speech mm-hmm. sound disorders, and um, it was written before the current definition of childhood apraxia of speech was out. So it's not based on those same features for picking out childhood apraxia of speech. And it's not really designed for that. Uh, Something I really like, though, with that assessment is that if you've got a child that is trying to use words and sentences, it can be a nice way to go about measuring your inconsistency. Um, So in the Dems, you can look at inconsistency. You can get get a bit of a score for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's based on a small number of trials. Uh, So the deep, I find, clinically can be nice to to, to use and include in your battery still. Mm-hmm. It's probably worth pointing out too that when you think about ESL populations, um, is that well, I've been going on a lot about these three features of child apraxia of speech to look out for. They're not going to necessarily have the same weighting as they do in English. So a little while ago, I was working with some people in Vietnam so talking about child apraxia speech and we're doing a little bit of you know comparison between english and vietnamese and in english our length of syllable um well as i should say my length of syllable as an english speaker uh, is, is quite quite long however for someone with Viet, uh, in the vietnamese language though um syllables are a bit shorter so you think oh okay maybe there's not as much to sequence but in English, my prosody, if I make a prosodic disturbance, if I make an error with my prosody, it's not going to affect too many words in terms of intelligibility, but that's going to make a big difference in Vietnamese, mm. all right? So that's just something to think about. Yeah, different languages will be yeah. affected by those different features in different ways. And we need a lot more research in that area, and that's something mm. that's, that's flagged as well. We uh just need that work to be done. Something mm. you'll notice is that speech pathology, where everyone's working very hard, but our research happens a bit slowly in the sense that the the, t- the time it takes for a test to come out is, is a very long time. So the DEMS was a long time in development. Mm. Um, it's a long time since 2007. So it'll be a little while, I think, even just when, if someone has an idea right now for the magic silver bullet um, just to mix my metaphors there, before <laughs> someone actually has the test, the child apraxia of speech. speech. Yeah. yeah. So just from your clinical experience then, before mm-hmm. we move on to our second paper, what tips would you have for clinicians in regards to CAS assessment? Fantastic. So I would say using something like, actually, before we talk about the use, I'd say which assessment you'd use, thinking about the level the child's at in terms of how much speech they're producing that will radically change the assessment you do. So if you have a child that is very reticent to make any productions, and you can have that for children with childhood apraxia of speech who are young, so the two and three-year-olds who are presenting to a clinic for the first time, um, who I know a lot of speech pathologists listening to this recording will be you know, very interested and concerned about because that's often mm-hmm. what we see. Yeah. For those children, their reticence to produce any speech is often based on a very strong self-awareness of their speech skills. And so with that reluctance to try speech, um, making sure that you go initially for targets that are as easy as possible and work up a developmental hierarchy of complexity of phonotactic and uh, phonotactic structure, so syllable shape, 
and also sound selection. So going for sounds that you're more confident they would be able to produce before you pick up, say, a commercially available assessment mm. that might have whole words and clusters and later developing sounds in it. I think that's super important. Your informal assessment is going to be great. So if you pulled out something like um, your chirper or, you know, for instance, so I know we can all get a copy of that thanks to mm. um, Baker and colleagues, which is, you know, a great bit of gear, you can start thinking, all right, what sounds and what syllable shapes am I noticing with the child? If you can get a child to imitate, I think that's vital for getting a good assessment. And as we talk more about therapy a bit later on, we'll unpack why being able to imitate is so critical. But how do you get those words out of a child? So I like to always leave people with something really practical you can do because that's what I need when yeah, I go, go, in, go into the clinic. That's um, what I, I need too. <laughs> I think switch toys are, are the bomb. I really like switch toys for kids yeah. when I'm trying to do that assessment um, because the reason is is that for a young child, I'm talking a very young child, so the two- to three-year-old is not yet using much speech and the most challenging to assess it can be really difficult to give these kids a differential diagnosis because you might not get enough enough of a sample so it's okay if the best you can provide is a hypothesis as to whether or not you think they may or may not have childhood practice or speech that's completely fine so give yourself that room but with a switch toy what I find is that we can tell the kids that the switch toy is is like voice activated and that if they try and make these funny sounds that we're making, that it'll make the, the toy work. So one of my favourites is this toy called uh, the, the Busy Ball Popper. Um, oh, yeah. I, I'm not on their payroll. Maybe I won't say yep. <laughs> If you look up Busy Ball Popper, you'll see. Yep. Is that like push ball pop? Push the button and all and these. And it swings balls. around. Yeah, yeah. I've got one of those. Yeah. They're fantastic. <laughs> I have bought multiple of them. <laughs> Over the years, yeah. And bought them for friends who are speechies. It's great. <laughs> um, and it's got a little switch on the back that you can sort of flip yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. When, when you, when you vocalise, it, it works. So when so use a bit of operant shaping, just any mm-hmm. vocalisation and bam, the ball popper switches on. And then you start by changing the vowel that you're using and then maybe try some different consonant mm-hmm. vowel combinations and slowly increase in complexity that way. Now, that will then be consistent with some concert commercially available assessments as well. So things like the DEMS or the Kaufman Speech Praxis Test, if you've had a look at that one, it will increase the complexity of the syllable structure that you'll try with a child as the test mm-hmm. continues. It progresses, yep. Yep, exactly. So um, that's, a, that's a great way to go. Another toy, just so as not to put too much emphasis on the busy ball popper, um, things that repeat children as well. So things like those, you know those annoying animals, you get them every time someone visits Scotland, they come back with a little sheep or something like that that does this. Or if they visit Australia and go to back somewhere else, um, you'll get a kangaroo that does it. You switch them on and they you speak to them and they say what you've said back to you, but you know, faster and more annoyingly. Maybe. I don't know that. <laughs> Is this a souvenir? Maybe I haven't travelled enough recently. <laughs> <laughs> souvenir. Um, talking, talking Tom's an app example of this. So okay. Oh, yes, talking Tom. Yeah, yeah. Talking Tom. So you speak and it repeats your voice back. That can be a lot of fun for kids as well and you can try different vocalisations. Okay, um, perfect. They're great ideas. Complexity there. Um, but what? Yeah, that's giving you a place to start. And from there, what you want to try and do is build up in your the range of sounds that you're using and look at the different phonotactics, so syllable shapes with different sounds involved 
and looking at as well the consistency. So if you try those uh, letter and sound combinations on multiple multiple times over that session with a bit of a break uh, in between each go, you'll be able to get an idea about the child's consistency of production. And as well, look back then to do a prosodic analysis. So even try and change your prosody. So maybe if you were using a word like mummy, you're wanting the child to repeat mummy and you can, you know, go mummy and change the stress um, on, on each syllable, if you like. Um, you can even make it louder and quieter, go for a whisper, etc. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, awesome. Great, great. That's my trick. <laughs> yeah, they're fantastic. All right, let's move on to paper number two, which mm-hmm. is a Cochrane review, which was called Interventions for Childhood Apraxia of Speech. And this particular paper, we will put a link in the show notes for people to refer to. Could you give everyone an overview of this paper, Kieran? All right. I love this paper a lot. Um, the reason being is the Cochrane Review is always the, the gold standard of a systematic review. Like this is, the, these are the reviews. Now, um, I can say that as well because one of the authors on um, the review I was just talking about is also on this paper as well. So, um so that's Elizabeth Murray. She's on both of those. So oh, she, knows, wow. she does a good, a good systematic review. She knows. She what sure she's does. <laughs> uh, the other, there's other people on this one as well, and, and none less than um, our own uh, Angela Morgan. So she's mm-hmm. based um, in Melbourne. Um, so Melbourneites, well, everyone probably around the world with an interest in childhood practice of speech will know who she is. So she's done some absolutely amazing work in this space, um, in, in sort of all levels of. Um, of study of child apraxia of speech. So it's an absolute force in this area um, and, yeah, amazing. So anyway, so the Cochrane Review, one of the other things I like about it is that they're very accessible. So you, there's always kind of like two versions. You get like a, um, a an executive summary, so to speak, at the start. So you get a nice little summary and then you can go and read the whole big thing if you're interested. Um, one of the other reasons I really love this paper is that uh, – it was Angela Morgan and um, I think it and colleague who did this uh, a couple of years ago. So I think it's about 2008 that was looking at um, the evidence for treatment for childhood apraxia of speech and no studies could be included. <laughs> so nothing oh. met the standard. Oh, um, no. Uh, um, for, to, to include in the paper. Right. And so it, it makes for a short systematic review. Uh, however, things have moved on since then, though. And so actually... This study talks about a randomised control trial that's been mm-hmm. done in Australia. Um, well, that's a step up. <laughs> absolutely. And the other thing is, is it provides reviews of a lot of other papers as well, or it looks at a number of other papers that uh, might not be randomised control trials but still provide some evidence for uh, treatment, effectiveness mm. or efficacy for, for child apraxia speech. So it's... Quite, quite helpful in that. So it'll give you a good selection of papers that you can go look at. Another thing that's useful for, um, every, well, everybody really, everyone needs this reminder, but clinicians, researchers alike, about how to look at the quality of a paper. So it tells you the kinds of things to look out for. So, you know, how, how is the randomization done or what, you know, what, what kind of biases, I should say more general, were, were in the paper? So what would make you in some way, shape or form doubt the findings of of an intervention study that you might be looking at or or not doubt them at least uh, just go in with a more uh, with a lens that considers that I suppose (laughs) absolutely that would be a great way to describe it that's right so to be able to have that healthy healthy questioning when you're reading the paper yeah so I'm not 
So every every paper, you know, presents evidence, but mm-hmm. there it's of different weight. Uh, and so this that provides a really these papers provide a really great way to look mm. through um, the evidence that you're receiving there. So, um, but yeah, good news as I was saying before, there is a randomised control about the treatment for childhood apraxia of speech. <laughs> so, and it did go into a number of different tra- treatment approaches, as you've mentioned. So, mm-hmm. which which approaches actually had the strongest evidence? The strongest evidence, so were for so this was a study done um, at University of Sydney. Uh, so this was looking at the REST program mm-hmm. and the Nuffield program. So yep. REST program, uh, so Kiri Ballard's a big author in that area. So she's down at the University of, um, of, of Sydney. Mm-hmm. And so it looks through the REST program and comparing it to the Nuffield. And so children who do Nuffield or REST were shown to have a, a treatment effect. So mm-hmm. child apraxia of speech was, was improved. Um, so that's great. So there are some evidence-based <laughs> treatments there for child apraxia of speech. Um, what's great too as well about REST coming up um, with the, in this study is that there's a lot of free resources and a lot oh, of workshops. so many. Yep. yep. And so. videos and YouTube clips and word lists and <laughs> everything. Yeah. It's a really handy ex- website. Yeah. The authors are extremely generous. So mm-hmm. if you go to University of um, Sydney website, mm-hmm rest and google mm-hmm. that you will find so many resources on how to how to do it so that's really helpful nuffield i mean everyone knows the word nuffield mm. um i think what that paper highlights is that you need to do the nuffield properly um, yeah. <laughs> as it's described not just photocopying some of the yeah. resources mm-hmm. and actually having a good proper go at the nuffield um and there are some good principles of modal learning that actually come in through the nuffield although the nuffield was developed i think before uh, principles of motor learning were formally applied mm. to speech pathology, through, say, through um, the work of, of Mars and colleagues. Uh, they happen to be <laughs> in existence in the Nuffield program. Touching on this article, I know that there is mention, obviously, of the different treatment approaches. And I think there's some mention about the basic print of principles that are important in CAS intervention. I'm just wondering if you could describe them for us. Sure. So there's a really important thread that goes through research that shows efficacy for the treatment or effectiveness for the treatment of childhood apraxia of speech or some kind of treatment effect anyway in that area. And that is that treatments that work for childhood apraxia of speech should be based on the principles of modal learning. So I briefly mentioned before about MAS and that work about applying Mm. the principles of modal learning to childhood apraxia of speech. And there's a really important paper that came out, I think it was 2008, which is kind of like a tutorial about like, here's your crash course in principles of modal learning. So look for a treatment that has those. So now it's probably probably beyond the scope of the the tutorial to go through all of those at the moment. Um, But a couple of things that I will say is that pre-practice is important. So a child Mm -hmm. knowing what the target is, what they're trying to achieve, and that you know they can do that target even with support, Mm -hmm. drill. So actually getting the child to do something over and over and over and over and over again uh, and feedback. So Mm -hmm. providing the right kind of feedback at the right time and being able to fade it out. They're really important. Mm -hmm. A good way to think about the uh, the principles of motor learning is that it's kind of like a set of levers at your disposal. So it's like um, if you're finding that your therapy is not working somehow or you're not sure what to do, you go back to the mm-hmm. principles of motor learning and you think, all right, what do I need to adjust? Is it that my child's actually learning some new words, but then they're not able to 
generalize those? What am I doing wrong? Am I providing mm. the wrong kind of feedback? Mm. Am I providing too much practice of the one thing? Mm-hmm. Um, am I not doing enough practice of mm. other things, for instance? So it gives you some tools or levers that where you can change the way you're doing your intervention and you'll notice then changes in mm. your child's performance. So if we go back to some of those then, if I can pull a couple of these things out. So if we can Mm -hmm. pull drill out as an example, what would you suggest in regards to um, keeping that interesting? Because we're aiming for pretty high drill targets. What are some activities perhaps or games that you could suggest that don't take away from our therapy time but are still motivating enough to keep this little one engaged in drill, which sometimes is not overly exciting? Fantastic. So this is, uh, I think, any success I've ever had with treating a child with child apraxia of speech has been come has come down to being able to get them to do drill um, and enjoy doing drill. So something that we do know about child apraxia of speech, and this comes out of, say, if you look at the Cochrane paper or the papers that are reviewed within that. Um, or if we look at the dynamic temporal and tactile cueing paper in a minute, is that these children need intensive therapy. So they're going to be doing a lot of practice. So they could be doing practice, you know, like three or four times a week with a speech pathologist and trying to get 100 to 150 drills per session. Um, So that's not a lot of fun. Like I don't like doing drills very much. Um, That's why I don't go to the gym because you're doing the same thing over and over again. It's, it's yeah. boring. Anyway, that's why we listen to podcasts when we're at the gym. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's make it a bit more interesting. <laughs> you're at the gym right now. I'm speaking to you. So good, good, good on you for being there. Um, but for children, the, the podcast isn't necessarily going to work. So my big tools that I love are, are toys that I often call like bit-by-bit toys. So toys where you can – the thing's broken into lots of bits – And every bit of that toy is enjoyable, but you want to get eventually to the whole of it, Mm -hmm. right? So one of these that I like is building a train with a child. Mm -hmm. So every piece of track that a child might have to want um, requires, say, 10 drills of a particular target. Mm -hmm. And so when the child gives me 10 drills, they get a piece of track. Right. And then another 10 drills, another piece of track. And before you know it, we've had 100 drills. Mm. And then the child's sick of it by then, obviously, but that's when they can play with the train. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) The train comes out. (laughs) That's when they can start getting the trains. Um, So Thomas trains are really good, actually, for those. Mm. They've got a lot of good names that are bisyllabic, actually, in the Mm. Thomas crew um, that I find really helpful then to start giving to the kids. Mm. That sounds like a great idea. uh, Nail polish is a really nice one. So for kids that are into that. um, So I've worked with with kids that like and I, I stole this idea actually i think from um either dave hammer or Edie strand so if you're listening sorry <laughs> this, is, this is your acknowledgement um but i might paint half a fingernail for every drill or a fingernail for the drills so if a child has 10 fingers they don't all but most of them do um they get a fingernail one fingernail painted for every 10 mm. so we get their whole all their fingernails done for 100 drills mm. um, and that's usually done pretty quickly and then we go for some more so we can go yeah, onto toenails maybe <laughs> toenails. Who knows? marble runs are a winner so you yep. can 
um, put pieces that most kids are motivated. I'm, I'm motivated to do a mm. marble run. Maybe that's how I managed to do it for so long. Um, so you can build up the the marble run and then eventually get to Until run you get the to, Yeah. Run. Yep. Yep. Um, right. Those are really good extrinsic motivators. It's also good to have intrinsic motivators as well. So if you can find toys where you can actually put the target word into those toys so they're making a request because if you're dealing with those very young children, who you know aren't yet talking or are only attempting their first words, they're more likely going to need an intrinsic motivator. That's that's the level mm-hmm. they're at, and you're trying to build their vocabulary. So you can pick toys out, things like um, different kinds of animals. So you can pick animal toys where the animals have you know conveniently two syllable or one syllable names, or you can even just go for symbolic noise mm-hmm. uh, if you're trying to build up a vowel repertoire or central or something. So that that's okay too. Yeah. Oh, great. They're awesome ideas. All right. So let's pull out another one of those principles then, Kieran. What about uh, the number or type of targets? What would you suggest for that? Sure. So in um, there's, a, there's a number of views on this one, and it also depends on what you're trying to do. So if you are trying to teach, this is based on principles of motor learning, if you're trying to teach a child a new motor pattern, what you want to do is decrease the range of targets that you're doing and have a small range of targets, but do high repetition of those, and you will teach the child that target, all right? You'll you'll get there. Um, However, if you're wanting to generalize, that's when you start to increase the range of targets that you're using. So what I would do is early in therapy, particularly if you've got a child who has very limited productions, to be attempting words that the child can can do and will be able to master, but a very small number. So you might only have one or two. Mm-hmm. Right? But the problem is you're not going to get that generalization. So then you have to start quickly introducing some more words. A happy medium, and this is based purely on my opinion, uh, is about six <laughs> targets. I usually wouldn't do many more than that in my typical session, but sometimes I increase it a lot if I'm like, oh, gee, I need to generalize this. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll go a lot higher. But sometimes in my first sessions with a child, I might be just having one or two targets. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. But that's another principle of motor learning. <laughs> Beautiful. Now, our big, big one that's always said in PDs, but one that in clinical practice is sometimes really difficult is dosage. What are your thoughts on dosage? Cool. This one's hard. Um, mm. This one's really hard. So we know based on the principles of motor learning and the studies that have been well, we know this from the studies that have been done, and we can say so theoretically, is that we want as many accurate productions of a target as we possibly can for a child to improve um, and to achieve that target. So the idea about what's fundamentally going wrong in, wrong in child apraxia of speech is that it is a disorder um, of motor planning and motor programming. And so if the child was good at motor planning and motor programming, they wouldn't need many drills. (laughs) But this is actually a problem for them. So any new target they learn, they're going to need many more practices at that than a typical child. So you need to keep your dosage as high as you can. Mm -hmm. Um, So with the ASHA technical report and position statement and most of the treatment studies that have been done have had children coming to therapy like four times a week. So like two hours. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Multiple times a week, which is really, really challenging in our Mm -hmm. clinical world. (laughs) That's right. So like two hours of practice with a speech pathologist split over um, multiple sessions a week. So it might be like four four half hour sessions a week, um, which would be better than two one hour, two two hour sessions. Mm. Mm. And then within that, you'd want the child to be doing 100 to 150 drills. 
okay, mm. to, to show improvement. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a lot of dose. That's a lot. <laughs> I don't know if anyone can do that. Mm. <laughs> not in in my well, certainly not people I know in my clinical world. <laughs> It's really challenging um, mm. and it's really difficult on families because of the cost, because mm-hmm. it's most likely in the private sector that you've got any chance of getting that kind of therapy. I think what we need to get better at as a profession, and this has to do with the amount of time and the amount of research that we can do, is not only look at what treatments might be effective, but then also include that economic health analysis in there as well, that health economics of it. And so showing that even though certain kinds of treatment might be expensive, so that is providing, you know, two hours of therapy a week or four half-hour sessions with a speech pathologist every week, that actually there's a big benefit to doing that for the broader community and that will, you know, save money mm. long-term because of the students' um, better yeah. educational outcomes and better yeah. career outcomes and social outcomes, et cetera, so that we'd actually see that there's a return. And look at that and what health economists call opportunity cost. So opportunity cost is what's lost? What is the cost of of the next best thing? Um, And the next best thing might be not doing anything or only Mm -hmm. seeing a child once a week for for six weeks or whatever the Mm -hmm. standard practice is in most most clinics. So I I think that that would be a really helpful thing that we need to do Mm. to show to um, the funders out there, whatever they be, public, private, et cetera, uh, what's uh, what's required and what's the benefit. And I guess just challenging some of our traditional service delivery models that we get quite comfortable with using um, and thinking, yeah, maybe um, a a small block of four sessions a week over a short period of time is more effective than seeing this little one for one session a week for a very long time. And if we think about principles of motor learning, that's a good way to look at it. So we know that from principles of motor learning that you get better at a skill if you do lots of practice um, distributed over a period of time. So you're better off doing, say, if you're learning a musical instrument, you're better off doing 15 minutes every day than just doing a big mm-hmm. um, cram right before your next lesson with the piano teacher, right? You're better off doing that yeah. little bit of practice every day than the big, the big, the big session there. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we think about those principles, then we can go, well, actually, can we change the way that we, we set up our, our practice or are we better off then for the children that we need to work with if our child had practice or speech, just seeing them in those intensive blocks. Mm. Something really important to remember is that intensive therapy isn't something you have to do all the time. So by the principles of motor learning, we talked about pre-practice. So does the child know what they have to do? Um, and then we've got this phase where we do the drill, make sure the feedback's right, where the children are learning a whole heap of new motor skills. But then Well, there might be times that the child's got to approach other goals. There's other things that are going on in their life. So if we have a big hard hit of our motor drill work Mm -hmm. uh, at specific times um, over the course of the year and then maybe incorporate some other goals that can be worked Mm -hmm. at with less intensity. And so if a child's not ready for Mm -hmm. drill, don't do it yet. Mm-hmm. Well, that sort of leads on to my next point, which is about the level of attention required, which with our little ones is really challenging. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So the level of attention required, that so comes into, if we think about principles of motor learning, that idea of pre-practice. So is a child ready to do drill work yet? Do they Are they motivated to do it? Do they know what you're trying to get them to do? And are they able to achieve 
the target. So for instance, if we wanted a child to be able to say puppy, for instance, and they understood the word puppy, they have a puppy at home, they, with support, were able to basically get the word puppy out with a high level of cueing, you'd be ready to drill it. And you, you could drill it. That would be fantastic. Um, now, if a child wasn't particularly motivated or they didn't even know the word puppy and they couldn't even get close to, to producing it with support, you you, would, you couldn't do it, right? Mm. Um, and that leads into the idea. So you, you wouldn't be even bothered doing drill practice. Now, part of drill practice will involve particularly, well, pretty much for any treatment, dynamic temporal and tactile cueing is a great example of this, but the child needs to be able to at least imitate the, the target and they need to be able to respond to the kinds of cues you're giving them. So you might be doing like a slow, simultaneous production with them. Um, they need to be able to, you know, watch your face and see what kind of movements you're doing. Um and as well, they need to be able to sit through a session for a while <laughs> in mm. order to be able to do enough enough mm-hmm. drills. So it's it's a fair level of attention that's required. Mm, can the child definitely. attend to you? Can they tolerate a, a number of drills? And um, do are they motivated <laughs> to to attend to you um, in, in order to get through the drill practice? Mm. All right. My last point then is feedback and the type of feedback. What are mm-hmm. your thoughts on that? Yep, feedback uh, from principles of motor learning, feedback is as important as anything else in, in the feedback. Um, so I'll refer the reader to, um, to the mass paper or you can find lots of resources online about going through all the specific kinds of feedback. What I'll say now, though, is that you need to give different kinds of feedback at different times. So there's like knowledge of performance versus knowledge of response. So that's looking at the difference between the child's ability to know if they said the word right, they did the overall what they did, and specifically what kind of movements they were doing. Mm-hmm. And so children need a combination of those. Um, the most detailed feedback that we can give a child initially, and so that is like, where are your articulators going? Are they going in the right spot? How did that sound sequence go, etc.? cetera? Um, what sound was used versus not used um, is super duper important because it's giving the child the information they need to be able to change their performance on the next trial. Now, at first as well, you'll be giving that feedback with really high frequency. So it might be after every single mm-hmm. drill. What we're hoping though, is that the child doesn't have to be in speech pathology all the time. So although that kind of feedback will help the child uh, to gain a new sequence of sounds, being able to produce uh, a new um, pattern or a new word, for instance, or a new phrase, and that's fantastic, but it's not necessarily going to generalize particularly well. So you've got to be, you've got to turn the child into the therapist. And the way you do that is by start fading out your feedback. So doing feedback less frequently. <laughs> so after fewer drills and the kind of feedback will become a little more general as well yeah. to the point that you're getting the child then to try and self-analyze and tell you whether or not they did a decent production. So you're turning. So mm-hmm. what you're doing is making up for the fact that there's some kind of sensory motor problem going on. So you're kind of being that sensory motor system for the child. So you're mm-hmm. giving them all that feedback about where their articulators are in time and space. And then 
boom, you start fading that out um, so that they can start taking over that role and their own system starts yeah. to work on what they're up yeah, to. Yeah, that's a good description. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. All right. So on to our third and final paper, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. And this is one that's called Dynamic Temporal and Tactile Cueing, a, a Treatment Strategy for Childhood Apraxia of Speech. And it was authored by Edith Strand, who you've mentioned a few times already. Could you give us a bit of an outline as to what this paper details? Sure. This is a great paper to look at because it gives you a, a big overview, great summary, and it's a very recent summary of a DTTC, um, so Dynamic Temporal and Tactile Cueing. Sometimes I say it the other way around, Dynamic Tactile and Temporal Cueing. <laughs> If I just say DTTC, no we know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm doing it the right way or the wrong way. Now, as we mentioned before, there's a, the highest level of evidence that we have for any type of therapy for childhood apraxia of speech at the minute um, that's sort of been released that, that I've seen is looking at Nuffield and REST. Now, those are very fine treatments. Now, there are... Um, there is evidence to support dynamic temporal and tactile cueing, but most of the evidence looking at this is what we'd call uh, a lower level of evidence. So it's more along the lines of small um, small studies with small numbers of, of participants or even single case studies. So the evidence for this is in that real emerging mm. state. So I think mm. it, it needs to be a, a, an RCT or something done. Mm. And you probably find our colleagues at the university, uh, maybe south of, of where I'm working, um, might be doing something like that. You never know. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> that could be happening as we Yeah, speak. exactly right. Watch this space. <laughs> Watch this space. But um, the thing I like about it, one is that you can do dynamic temporal and tactile cueing without buying a program. Mm. You, if you're a speech pathologist listening at the moment and you're under-resourced, and I always say speech pathologists, we never we never have enough stuff. We're never paid for what, what, what we're worth. Um, you don't have to worry about um, going out and buying a Nuffield program or doing the Nuffield training, etc. Because our evidence base is more than just what's the highest level of evidence for it. We've got the whole evidence-based practice triangle. Yeah, that's right. So we've got to think about not just what research evidence out there, that is important, don't do anything out there, any research evidence, but um, what are the client preferences and what, what can you do as a speech pathologist where you are and what could you understand? So um, the dynamic temporal and tactile cueing, it's heavily based in principles of motor learning. So you can get principles of motor learning, you can do it, if you can find an article on it, you can read up all about it and know what there is to know about it. And it's quite widely used as well. So you can ask other experienced therapists about how how to do it. Mm -hmm. So uh, Edie Strand is very generous and popped all sorts of videos up online. So it's a way you can, I'm not saying you should just, you know, read an article and watch YouTube and, oh, bam, you're away and you can do everything in dynamic temporal and tactile cueing, but it's quite accessible um, if you're a speech pathologist without a lot of access to a lot of resources. So thinking more broadly about the evidence-based triangle, <laughs> the evidence-based practice pyramid or triangle, you want to call it, uh, there's all sorts of models out there with circles and squares and things now. But anyway, if you think about your evidence-based <laughs> practice triangle, uh, it's actually a good treatment um, because of that accessibility. Something I'll add in to for that evidence-based practice triangle is that if we think about client preference and what are the client's needs, this is a good treatment to start off with for the child who doesn't have many or any words. Yes, so right. So that's what I thought. It was best suited to a particular group of kid, wasn't it? <laughs> that's right. So mm. the children that are just learning to talk is probably yeah. where I'd start 
with using this treatment. Now, I wouldn't use dynamic temporal and tactile cueing for every single kid that I work mm-hmm. with. I'd always use principles of motor learning, but I might move on to rest when we've mm-hmm. got a bit more speech happening um, so that, one, we're not neglecting prosody, but also um, the older children, I think, can handle some of those sequences mm-hmm. a little bit better. Mm, that's my sure. personal experience there. Yeah, um, that's yeah. generally how I'd, I'd use the two. Um, so this paper is a great summary. It looks at the principles of motor learning and how dynamic temporal and tactile cueing fit in with those mm-hmm. principles of motor learning. Uh, it also gives us a great the cueing hierarchy of dynamic yeah. temporal and tactile cueing, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, and also. Um, like some great decision making about when, about what the child's doing and then what it is you could do next. It's actually really quite systematic. It, it's hard to, hard to go wrong with it. Actually. Mm, no, it is a good, good paper. If it's an approach mm. that you're not sure about and you want to learn more about, this is the paper to go to because it is a mm. great summary of the of you know how it looks, definitely. Um, all right, so there was um, a treatment hierarchy that is described in this paper. I'm wondering if you mm-hmm. could just give us a bit of an outline as to what the treatment hierarchy is fantastic so there's a couple of ways to look at it so um the main the main hierarchy is around this idea of a a cueing hierarchy that's probably Mm -hmm. what most people think of when they think of a hierarchy in dynamic temporal and tactile cueing and it's the idea about how we fade our cueing out for a child so as we mentioned before that we're kind of start off as being as much the child's sensory motor system as we can at first and then we try and fade that out so the child becomes their own system and so what happens is it gives you good accuracy at first and fading that out, and so the child then gets better generalization occurring. Mm. So at first, we start off with a child with a tar- with the minimal level of cueing that we can get for the child to give you an accurate production. And if we're trying to expand the child's um, vocabulary or what sound sequences they can do, because that's normally what we're thinking about in child or their practice your speech, we'd be going for a slow, simultaneous production with the child. That's like the, the most amount of cueing we can give mm. the child. So face-to-face with the child, them looking at our face, we're looking at their face, and we would say a target together. All right, we're doing a slow, simultaneous production. The next step down is we'd go for direct imitation. So I say it, you say it. Next step down after that is a delayed imitation. So I say it, then we might do a little count, and then the child does it, and then after that we've got a spontaneous production. Now there's a few levers, little levers that we can pull (laughs) in the middle there just so it's not so (laughs) sharp moving Mm, from one level mm. to the next, but that's generally the hierarchy. The other important idea in a hierarchy there is that the child uh, for the dynamic temporal and tactile cueing is that, well, where do you start your targets and your target selection? Mm. And that's really core. And it's what the child can do and what's going to give them their best intelligibility. Right, because these are kids with minimal vocab, aren't they, at this mm-hmm. point? So I'm really interested in your thoughts on that. Like what what sort of, where do we go? Where does our thinking take us in regards to selecting targets? So the first thing one should do is after your assessment and you've had a chance to think about diagnosis etc or you might even just have a hypothesis that you think this child might have child apraxia of speech keep a really open mind to what data that you have so you might have look at what consonants the child can produce what vowels the child can produce and what syllable shapes they can produce and you'd also have some ideas about what might be in their early vocabulary already mm-hmm. and use whatever sounds and phonotactic structures are already there Mm. 
to build up some new vocabulary for the child that's motivating. Right. So it, yeah. it doesn't matter if the child comes to you with a z and an oo and an all or something, use those words, uh, use those sounds and look at what phonotactic structures that the child has to put those sounds into those phonotactic structures. Mm-hmm. The real goal in child apraxia of speech is to improve those three features. So we want to improve co-articulation. We want to improve consistency of speech and prosody. So right from the beginning, your therapy is going to be focused on building up the syllable shapes that are able to do with um, a large and increasing range of sounds within those with, (laughs) and this just to make things fun, um, within a range of of prosody occurring. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you had a child that had, say, the sound z um, and they could do phonotactic structures of um, CV mm-hmm. and um, CVCV, so consonant vowel and consonant vowel, consonant vowel re- repeated, you'd think, okay, well, what could we do? We could do zoo. That mm-hmm. could be an early word. And as long as a child didn't have zoophobia or they would be motivated to say zoo and you'd find some way you could use it, you would use that word and you would drill it. And then you're having more success with getting CV combinations. So you'd think, okay, CV is going well. What other sounds have I got? Do I need to teach another sound? Okay, maybe I do. But I will teach that sound in, I'll scaffold and think, all right, we're having some success with CV. Let's pop a a but in there. Let's see if we can teach that um, and pop that in and maybe try the word boo. Mm -hmm. We spend as little time as possible working on individual sounds and as much time as possible working at that syllable level and and beyond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what suggested dosage do they have for this approach? I'm assuming it's quite high like the others we were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So in this paper, it's a big big advocacy for the uh, multiple sessions a week. So the distributed mm-hmm. practice of say um the of half an hour sessions uh four times a week with 100 150 drills mm-hmm. is what we're going for mm-hmm. yep so is there any tips then or could you point us in the right direction to get some more information and resources about dttc i know that you just mentioned that there were clinician videos so forth where would we find those brilliant so my advice is to um, get onto youtube and for a start and if you look up uh, edith strand dynamic temporal and tactile cueing you will find a plethora of videos that she's released going through this technique Um, and some of them are getting a little older so the evidence base for them might not be as refreshed as Mm -hmm. you'd find in the paper we're discussing but you'll get a good um, overview of the process Um, also if you google (laughs) Edith Strand um, dynamic temporal and tactile cueing um, you'll get some resources that might pop up there as well from the Mayo Clinic Another useful website to have a look at is the Kasana website. Um, so that one is the Childhood Apraxia of Speech Association of North America. Um, and they look at a, well, they have evidence from a range of um, treatment approaches where they'll have some evidence summaries and they'll also have some basic information about the different treatment approaches aimed at different audiences. So some will be aimed at parents, some will be at teachers, some will be for clinicians. So that's also good. And there's a fair bit of stuff about dynamic temporal and tactile cueing there. Mm. 
And as you can, as you say, let's hope that evidence base keeps growing because um, it sounds like a great approach and it'd be great just to see that evidence base grow so that we've got um, more evidence to tell us that this is definitely something to use. Brilliant, yeah. Now, huge, huge thank you, Kieran. That has just been so useful and so fascinating. But before we finish, um, I did just want to touch on an upcoming online PD that you're presenting for Speech Pathology Australia. I believe it's a four-part live online event. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I'm really excited for the opportunity to be part of this workshop. So we're looking at speech sound disorders that we see in children and we're really fortunate to have some big experts in a range of different speech sound disorders. So we'll be looking at cleft palate, we'll be looking at different kinds of phonological disorder and we'll also be looking at speech sound disorders with bilingual populations oh and there'll be something on child apraxia of speech and the speakers that we'll have are dr annan cronin so her phd and research area has been cleft palate mm-hmm. we'll have associate professor Alison home who's done an awful lot of work in phonological disorders and bilingual populations and of course Uh, Dr. Sharon Crosby, who's done a lot of work with inconsistent phonological disorder and phonological disorders in general. Um, I'll I'll be there as well um, talking about (laughs) autopraxia of speech. Of course. Let's throw Mm -hmm. that in at the end. (laughs) Now, I believe that's in October, isn't it? Is that when Mm -hmm. that's? Yeah, beautiful. That's the plan. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So keep an eye out on the Speech Pathology Australia Learning Hub. That sounds like an incredible um, online PL that I'll certainly be keeping my eye out for as well. So keep an eye on the Learning Hub, which is where details of all our upcoming PDs um, are put. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can't thank you enough. I feel like that's just been such a great um, little journey through three research articles that I certainly had not read um, before we've had a chat and I just found that super, super useful. So thank you so much, Kieran, for your time. Always happy to talk. And thank you as always for tuning in. We will be back in your ears next Wednesday. Have a super week ahead. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.